Our scripture passage this morning comes out of the book of Romans as we continue in Romans chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 25 through 29. A little bit of an odd section of scripture in the book of Romans, but uh, with great application and great import for us. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. Paul writes, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from man, but from God. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Have you ever wondered who the people are who are the most difficult to reach with the gospel? We must remember that only God can save a soul and that nothing is too difficult for him. Reminds me of a song. Once, nothing is too, once those get in my mind, I don't get them out the rest of the morning. But from a human standpoint, some types of people seem to be more difficult to bring to a saving faith than others are. Even the Lord Jesus, member of the rich young ruler who walked away from the demands of salvation. And Jesus said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, rich people are a tough case. But the Bible shows us that the most difficult people to reach are people who trust in their religion. They relish their rituals, they relish their religious traditions, and they place their eternal security and their salvation in the keeping of ceremonies and rituals. They don't see the need for a savior for sin from sin because they think they're pretty good people and they do a pretty good job of, of keeping their stuff. And they think they're right with God because of their religious performance. The hypocritical Pharisees of Jesus' day were all about religious performance. When they gave money to the poor, and when they dropped their offering in the box, they'd have somebody blow a trumpet. And so there's kind of a double thing here, because somebody would blow a trumpet, and everybody would turn and look, and then there was a metal thing, kind of like a funnel underneath the box, and so they would pour their coins in, so they're all the way down, around. oh, how cool is that, what a great offering. And so they did it to be seen by men. And when they prayed, they liked to stand at the busy street corners. For as Jesus said, they love to stand and pray so they may be seen by men. So religious people don't see their need for a savior to save them from their sin because they view themselves as pretty good. Who deserve to be noticed by others for the good things that they do. And especially their religious observances, their rituals, their, their ceremonies. They may be Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Baha'i, Mormon, Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant. And as one pastor said, they can even be Baptists. <laughs> they think that their religious performance, their religious rituals, whatever they are, will somehow commend them to God. But they lack reality with the living God at the heart level. 
The Apostle Paul knew that the most difficult people to reach with the gospel were not the pagan Gentiles that we talked about in Romans chapter 1, nor were they like Matthew or Zacchaeus who were tax collectors, hated tax collectors. People saw them as selling out to the Roman government. Or nor were they like the sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Many obviously wicked people know that they are sinners. They may not be sure that God could ever forgive them, but when they hear the good news, they welcome it when they hear it. But the religious Jews didn't see themselves as sinners. And so they didn't see the need for a savior. They trusted in their Jewishness. They trusted in their possession of God's law. We have the law of God that was given to us. They trusted in their conformity to the prescribed religious rituals, especially the external rite of circumcision. Why did they need the gospel? Why did they need to get right with God? Didn't the Apostle Paul know what kind of people they were? Or they would ask, why would he question my religion and my commitment to it? Well, you see, Paul knew what kind of people they were. Because he was one of them. At least he had been one of them. At one time, he had taken great pride in his circumcision, his Jewishness, his zeal for the Jewish religion. Paul had written to the Philippians, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I find far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is of the law found blameless. So when Paul had put, but when Paul had put his confidence in the flesh, that is in his external conformity to the rituals and requirements of his religion, when he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless as far as the law was concerned, He didn't know Christ. He didn't have his sins forgiven. He wasn't reconciled to God. He was not right with God or in right standing with God, even though he was devout and dedicated to the law of God and the performance of his religion. So now in Romans chapter 2, Paul wants his fellow Jews who trusted in their religious rituals and trusted in their Jewishness to see their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To see their, that Jesus was the once for all sacrifice for their sins. So he hits them hard. Same way he hit the Gentiles hard about their sin, he's hitting the, the, the Jews. In fact, he, he gives them a shocking argument here. He says the obedient Gentile will fare far better on judgment day than the disobedient Jew. So Paul is trying to strip every religious person of his religiosity to get down to the core, get get down away from all these things and through all these things they had encrusted their lives with as forming the basis of their acceptance with God or supposed acceptance with God. So that person will be driven to the cross of Jesus Christ for mercy. It's not how religious a person is. It's not in their devotion to ritual and ceremony. It's not of anything in the flesh. It's not what is external at all. And Paul wants them and he wants us to see reality with the living God is not not a matter of outward conformity to religious ritual, but rather obedience that results from God changing the heart. 
You'll hear me say probably 50, 60 times this morning, heart. If you don't get anything else, it's of the heart. It's of the heart. That's of the heart. That's the point we'll be making. And so in Romans chapter 2 and verses 25 through 29, we're, we're going to see two things about spiritual reality, and they're going to answer some questions. How do you know you have the real thing when it comes to your relationship with the living God? How do you know it's the real thing with your eternal security? How do you know you're trusting in the right things? How do you know that you are right with God right now? And how do you know you're going to be right with God and right standing with him on Judgment Day? There used to be a TV show back in the black and white days called Who Do You Trust? If you remember that, do anybody remember that? Oh, man, I am getting old. No, i got one hand back here. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. I see that hand. <laughs> Who do you trust? And if you didn't trust the right thing, then they threw pies in your face and they got dunked in water and all kinds. It was just lots of fun. In what or whom do you trust? Is it real when it comes to your eternal life? If it's not real, then you're in a lot of trouble. Well, when it comes to ritual versus reality, we see two things in Romans chapter 2. We see the evidence of reality. How do we know it's real? What is the evidence that it's the real thing? And then secondly, related to that, we see the heart of reality or the essence of reality. What reality looks like. It's the very heart or the very essence of the matter. So first of all, the evidence for reality. In verse 25 of Romans chapter 2, second chapter of Romans, the 25th verse, Paul brings up the practice of circumcision as the great mark of the covenant, the mark by which people knew that they were in covenant with God. Verse 25, for indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Here we see the evidence of reality. Reality with God is not a matter of outward conformity to religious rituals, but it's of the heart. To know something is real, we don't look at what we see in the externals, we look at the heart. Over 500 years before God gave Moses the law, God instituted the practice of circumcision as a sign of his covenant with Abraham. It was a symbol, not the reality. In fact, we know from Hebrews in the book of Romans, it was the shadow of the reality. It symbolized moral purity and separation from the world unto God. It was the ritual act that distinguished the Hebrew people from all the other people in the world. Then under the law of Moses, it became a sign of membership in the covenant community under the, the covenant with God. So as a God-ordained ritual, circumcision was of value to the Jews as a reminder of their covenantal relationship with God and the need to be morally and physically set apart to God as God's people. Now, when Paul says in Romans 2.25 that circumcision is a value, that it has value, he's speaking to the Jews as Jews. Paul is not addressing Christians here. He is speaking to Jews. This has nothing to do with Gentiles. Circumcision is of no value to Gentiles. When he addresses those who are in Christ, he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But what does mean something is faith working through love. Circumcision is not part of the new covenant that we have in Christ. Circumcision was a Jewish sign of the covenant that ended when Jesus initiated the new covenant. 
There was no longer any need for the sign. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, he's strictly speaking to Jews here. Speaking to them as God's old covenant people to show their need to receive Christ so that they would see the need to become God's new covenant people in Jesus Christ. Turn back to the prophet Jeremiah for a minute. Jeremiah chapter 31, the 31st chapter. Easy to memorize, at least where the address is. Jeremiah 31, 31. The new covenant. God said he would make with the Jews is not ritual and law, but it's of the heart. The evidence is in the inner man. It's what was written in the heart. Verse 31 of Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The danger of religious rituals, even those that God commands, is that they become external only. So even from the earliest times, Moses exhorted Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, circumcise your heart. And Jeremiah said the same thing. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the inner person. The evidence is in the inner person, not in the outward performance of rites and rituals. Both Moses and Jeremiah made the point that the physical ritual of circumcision had to be accompanied by its spiritual meaning, what it really meant. Namely, holiness, obedience to God at the heart level. It's a matter of the heart, not something that is only external. And without such reality with God in the heart, the ritual lost its essential meaning and was virtually worthless. So that brings us to the heart of the matter. Play on words there. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where we see the essence of reality, the heart of reality. After making a contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul says something that is totally shocking to the Jews who would be hearing this, who would be reading this, because he totally redefines what the Jews thought it meant to be a Jew. Verse 28, Romans chapter 2, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. This would have been shocking to the Jews of of Jesus or Paul's day. It would be shocking to typical Jew today. Who take great pride in being the circumcised son of, of Abraham. The Jews despised the unclean Gentiles. They called them uncircumcised dogs. You remember when David went out to meet with Goliath, he had some choice words about his circumcision as well. They took great pride in their Jewish lineage and their rituals, and, but they were wrongly concerned about outward matters. Jesus said they cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside they were full of sin. 
And so Paul is cutting through all the external privileges and practices and says the main thing in God's sight is not the outward, but the inward reality with God is a matter of the Holy Spirit changing hearts, not of performing religious rituals. And so in doing so, Paul redefines what it means to be a Jew. And we're going to see somewhat four somewhat overlapping contrast here to drive home this point. The essence of reality, one, is it's not outward, but inward. Two, it's not the flesh, but it's the heart. Three, it's not the letter, but it's the spirit. And four, it's praise is not from men, but from God. So first of all, reality with God is an outward matter, not the inward. Look at the beginning of verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one inwardly. Now jump down to verse 29. But he is a Jew who is outwardly. I say inwardly, outwardly. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Remember, Jesus made this point in the Sermon on the Mount. When he pointed out that if you've committed. That if you've been angry with your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. If you committed adultery in God's sight. It just means you've lusted after a woman in your heart, even though you've never touched her. God looks on the heart. You know, if we apply this to our religiosity, if that's a good word, you can impress people with your polished prayers, with your knowledge of the Bible, with powerful sermons, generous gifts to the church, all sorts of religious activities. But all the while that you're impressing people, God is looking at the heart. What was the motive when you do those things, when you did those things, and what kind of thoughts were you entertaining? To have reality with God, you've got to focus on the inward. Of course, if you're right inwardly with God, it will express itself properly in outward deeds. But the outward must begin first with the inward. And secondly, reality with God is not a matter of the flesh, but of the heart. Second part of verse 26, right after the word outwardly, which the pastor misspoke a little bit ago. He says, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Then go to the middle of verse 29. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. Circumcision is not that which is outwardly in the flesh, but it's that which is in the heart. And Paul is in line with both Moses and Jeremiah here. That true circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, but it's a matter of the heart. What this means practically in an application, it means we must deal with sin on the heart or thought level, right? We must put to death or cut off the deeds of the flesh when they occur where? In our minds first. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 and 13, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Well, those are pretty strong words. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This means that the, the very first moment you are tempted. Turn from it. Cry out to God. Spirit. Cry out to his spirit to strengthen you to run from it. And then what? Fill your thoughts with Christ. And so Paul adds in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, 
Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things where above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek those things. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things which are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Who are the children of God? Those who are being led by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit. And so if you develop that habit of crying out to God and relying on his Spirit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh by outward sins. And then thirdly, reality with God is not a matter of trying to keep the letter of the law in your strength, but of God's spirit changing your heart by faith in Christ. Verse 29 of of Romans chapter 2 again. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, by the spirit, not by the letter. You know, Ezekiel, don't need to turn to it, but Ezekiel chapter 36 is 36 verses 25 through 27. God promised a spiritual revival for his sinning people. In Ezekiel 36, there's a debate among scholars. Is is this during the millennial kingdom of Christ? Is this afterwards? When is this? All we know is that God made a promise that relates to all of this. God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, even though we don't know when that's going to happen with the people of Israel and the timing of that promise, but we do know this, Ezekiel was talking about the new birth, the new birth, which Jesus told the religious Nicodemus he needed. Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again, and that just totally threw Nicodemus. It confused him. He he wondered, you know, can I go back into my mother's womb and be born all over again? But Jesus responded, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus careful observance of religious rituals was not enough. He needed God's spirit to give him a new heart which comes by faith in Jesus' death on the cross for his sins. When a person receives Jesus Christ and trusts in him for the forgiveness of his or her sins, the Holy Spirit regenerates. Boy, what a great word. You know, like justification, sanctification, regeneration. We don't talk enough about those, but, but we need to. The Holy Spirit regenerates the person spiritually. Everybody who is born into this world is born dead spiritually. Because when Adam and Eve say sin, they die. They begin to die physically for the first time. Their cells begin to degenerate. But their spirit also degenerated immediately. Spiritually, they were dead. 
And they need their spirit to be regenerated. Born again of the spirit. Where the spirit of God comes and makes a person a brand new person. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. When we are born of God, we are given a new heart, one that is pleasing to God, as we saw in Ezekiel chapter 36. God puts his spirit within us as well, and and his spirit causes us to walk in his statutes and his ordinances. This does not come about by good intentions or white-knuckled effort, by trying to keep the letter of the law or faithful observance to ritual and ceremony. We want to please our new father by surrendering to his Holy Spirit who lives within us. We allow him to change our desires. We allow him to change our goals and change our wills to conform to his. Think of it this way. As a baby grows to look like the parents to whom it was born. You ever notice that? Kids tend to look like their parents. When we are born again, we grow to be more and more like our heavenly father. When we are born again. Of God. And the law by itself did not give the power to obey it. The law was never, we talked about that in Sunday school, the law was never intended to give us the power. It only gives us the knowledge of sin. But now, by God's Spirit living in us, He has poured out in our, our hearts, He has changed us, changed our hearts as His people, and we are able to obey God from the heart. Reality with God means that His Spirit has changed your heart. So now we are able joyfully to obey Jesus Christ. And lastly, reality with God means that you do not receive praise from men, but from God. The end of of Romans chapter 2, verse 29. So he says, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. For the Jews and the Pharisees and those who are into religion, it's all about receiving praise from other men. Even to the point that I I wondered, I tried to look it up this week. I wonder if that's where the phrase tooting your own horn comes from, (laughs) from what the Pharisees did. Had to be greatly related, but I couldn't find anything about its original derivation. But Jesus says that the only reward they're going to get is the accolades of men. That's it. No reward in heaven. If you get a reward from men, then there's no reward in heaven. But the reality of the one who is born again is that he and she receive praise from God. We do get praise from God. This means also that those whose hearts and spirit has been circumcised lives with a whole new focus in life. Rather than seeking to impress others with their religious activities, as the Pharisees did, we seek to please God From the heart. Instead of focusing on what others think of us, we focus on what God thinks of us. As Paul said when he contrasted himself with the Judaizers who focused on the ritual of physical circumcision, he says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that final phrase in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, His praise is not from men, but from God. Paul uses a wordplay here that we don't see or get in English, but the Jews would have immediately picked up on it. Although Paul wrote in Greek, his Jewish readers would know that in the Hebrew, the word Jew comes from the word Judah. Judah, which means praise. Remember we talked about that at Thanksgiving? Yada, Yudah, 
We cast to the Lord. We praise his name. And so Paul has a double meaning here the Jews would have picked up. His Judaism, his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, the one who has experienced the circumcision of his heart by the Holy Spirit is the true Jew. He hasn't just gone through a religious ritual, but now he's pleasing to God who gave him a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ. He isn't practicing his religion to get the praise of men. Rather, he lives before God so that one day he will hear from God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. His praise will be from God. In a few minutes, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And it begs the question, the Lord's Supper, reality or ritual? Do we partake of the elements of the bread and the cup as a religious ritual, as as an external rite? The same can be asked of baptism, reality or ritual. And what matters to God is a deep inward, the secret work he does through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And what Paul writes about circumcision and being a Jew could also be said about baptism and being a Christian. The real Christian as with the real Jew is one who is one inwardly and the true baptism like the right, the true circumcision is of the heart and by the spirit. But the difference is this. In the case of circumcision, which, you know, in the case of circumcision, the inward was replaced the outward and the physical. And so circumcision is of no value anymore. But what about baptism? You know, is it just another ritual that we can forego if we really have the spiritual reality? I've talked to people who kind of believe, oh, it doesn't matter if I do that. I know what's what's in here. Well, one of the reasons is because Jesus commanded us to go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when, when people were received Christ and cried out in the book of Acts, what must I do? They said, be baptized. And, and it's with the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded it. So we are to do this in remembrance of him. We call them the ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. This is what we do in obedience to Jesus Christ. But it's really cool. The visible sign in baptism of going into the waters of baptism are the expression of what God has done in our hearts. The physical evidence of baptism uh, derives its importance from the invisible reality of what God has done, the washing of our sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given us to which it bears witness. Now, when we get to the sixth chapter of Romans, we'll see the spiritual meaning of baptism and wonderful death. But I I want to focus on... an important aspect of baptism in the Lord's Supper that has to do with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are a vivid portrayal of the gospel. When I was pastoring in Nevada, our church members witnessed the people in the casinos that they worked with. And we saw a lot of people in the casinos come to faith in Jesus Christ. And these new babes in Christ who had just received Christ They wanted their co-workers and their friends who were not saved to see their baptism. And so we would most often have baptism services on Monday evening because that was the slow night in the casino and people could get the night off. 
They could come. And on Monday evenings, we would have people in the baptism service sitting there that we'd never get on a Sunday morning, especially when they got off at 2 o'clock early that morning and weren't interested in that. And, and to see their friends baptized, they would see a vivid portrayal of the gospel. Turn over to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 as we, as we look at it just briefly here. The sixth chapter of Romans For a minute there, I thought somebody took the sixth chapter out of my Bible, but it's still there. Verses three and four. And incidentally, as we think about the picture that is here, this is why we baptize by immersion. That's what the word baptizo means, to immerse. uh, Because if we sprinkle or some other mode, then it misses all the the beautiful picture here uh, of what's going on. Think about the picture here, how baptism expresses the spiritual reality of what has already happened in the heart and life through Jesus Christ and by his spirit. Begin at verse three of Romans chapter six. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, the baptism, there's more than one kind of baptism in Scripture. This is first talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit indwells us and the Holy Spirit puts us in Christ. And the, the Christ puts us in the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, first of all, is the element of which we're immersed when we receive Christ. But then Paul goes on to use that beautiful picture of water baptism so that we might identify with Christ in this. Just as the Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross and placed in the stone cold tomb, As we go down in the water and water baptism, as we identify with Christ, we are buried with him. We are buried with him. We are crucified with Christ. We are in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And as we come up out of the baptismal waters, we identify with the Savior just as Christ was raised from the dead. We are raised up with him and we are seated with him. At the right hand of the Father. Did you know that? That's a big seat. <laughs> we are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. So that, and that's, this is an important so that, so that we might walk in newness of life. We are to walk a completely different kind of life. Resurrection life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, in this stupid body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the reality. The reality of one who has been crucified with Christ and who walks and lives, even though we're still in the flesh, in newness of life. And that's the reality through baptism, as we'll see in a minute, through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's the reality where we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel in a very vivid way so people can understand the gospel. And people do. In a moment, we're going to take of the Lord's Supper, and I'll talk more about how that works with that. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, now as we prepare our hearts, 
to partake of the, the bread and the cup, Lord, and in remembrance of our Savior. Father, I thank you that we will have this very tangible, this very vivid way to, to express the reality of what you have done in our hearts, in saving us and redeeming us, in sanctifying us, in making us more and more to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ, Father. And so now I pray that you would use the hymn that we might take and pause and think of what it means to, to be in Christ as we surrender all. And we, for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.